On today's episode of Unlocking the Club, I am thrilled to be in conversation with Julie Lithcott Hames. Julie is the New York Times bestselling author of How to Raise an Adult, which gave rise to a popular TED Talk. Her second book is a critically acclaimed and award-winning prose poetry memoir, Real American. Real American illustrates her experience as a Black and biracial person in white spaces. Her third book, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult, has been called a groundbreakingly frank guide to adulthood. Thanks for tuning in as we unlock the club with our special guest today, Julie Lipcott Hames. Welcome to the Unlocking the Club podcast, where we host honest and direct conversations about journeys of access, personal truth, and reclaiming space. We share our truth so that you can find the key to own your truth, honor your journey, and reclaim your space. Grab your keys, your wallet, your phone, and invite your friends to meet you at the club. Here's your host, Angela Taylor. Hello again. I'm Angela Taylor, your host for Unlocking the Club. And today we're actually going to unlock the club on storytelling, on crafting the narrative, and on how stories are told and by whom those stories are able to be told. So it's actually a little bit of an irony that today, now, I have finally discovered that storytelling is a common thread in the many things that I do. And as I lean into my calling, I consider myself a caretaker of people, a caretaker of ideas, and a caretaker of stories. But it wasn't always that way. I think I always enjoyed reading books. I was a voracious reader. Uh, I enjoyed writing. But in seventh grade, one of my writing teachers or English teachers came to me and invited me to participate in this creative writing group that would meet before and after school. And without even hesitation, I quickly said no. I don't even know what was on my mind. I said no unequivocally and just carried on to my next class. And she kept asking me, she kept running into me in the hallway uh, and asking me until finally one day at parent teacher conferences, my mom came home and she's like, you know what, I talked to your teacher and she told me that she's been asking you a number of times to be part of this creative writing group and you keep saying no. First of all, why haven't you told me that she invited you to do that? Because I think it would be a great idea. And secondly, why don't you want to be part of that group? And I really had no explanation for her. I just said that it just wasn't something that I wanted to do. Uh, and uh, as my mom always has been known to do, um, she, she left me with that in that moment, but she asked me to reconsider um, in different conversations or car rides that we would have, but I just simply wouldn't budge. Um, I just didn't want to be part of that creative writing group. And I'm still not sure why I said no, because again, I did enjoy writing at that particular time, but I suspect it was about this sense of, you know, I grew up in Mountain Home, Idaho, um, was one of the only black girls in my class in seventh grade. I had some friends from the, the base, um, but in the downtown uh, junior high, I was one of the only black girls. And so I had this sense that I already didn't fit in and Perhaps it was that that creative writing group would give me another one of those check marks, another reason that I wouldn't fit in with a popular crowd, right? If you're an athlete or if you're a musician or cheerleader or all those different things, then you were in a popular crowd. And I wasn't quite sure if being in that creative writing group would have me in that club. I think that that was it kind of in that time of my life. 
But now that I've had a chance to reconsider and think about it quite often, uh, I think there was more to it. Uh, I think, in fact, it was more about the understanding that being part of that creative writing club, because I did have friends that were in the club and they talked about the stories that they would write and some of the, the homework assignments that they had. And oftentimes it would be talking about their families. It would be talking about their family history. It would be talking about something personal. And when I reflect on it, I think that I didn't have the willingness to be vulnerable in that moment to share who I was, to share my story in a way that where they would understand it because my story wasn't reflected in many of the books or stories that I had access to. Uh, and I wonder how much of my resistance to being part of this creative writing group was the fact that very few books that I read at the time depicted characters that I could relate to. Earlier on in my learning journey, I loved the Ramona books, Ramona the Pest and Ramona the Brave. Uh, I cruised through the Nancy Drew series over the summers, and I really started to enjoy um, Mary Higgins Clark books after I read Stillwatch. Um, but outside of Essence Magazine or Jet or Ebony, I can't recall any stories about young Black girls that I could relate to. And I wonder if that is one of the reasons that I was resistant to being part of that creative writing group, because I didn't know how to articulate who I was in a way that people would get me and get it and appreciate my vulnerability. And so I said no. And I look back at that and I wonder what it would have been like if I had said yes to that moment. Um, because again, I did love creative writing. Um, and all of this really started to percolate with me recently where um, one of my book clubs that I'm a part of, I have this awesome book club with some amazing colleagues and friends. And we read a book uh, called American Dirt by Janine Cummins. And as we were preparing to talk about the book, uh, the uh, member of the book club who selected it, Anne, actually sent out a few articles outlining the controversy uh, that was going on about that particular book, American Dirt. And a lot of it was centered around, um, it was one of the selections in the Oprah Winfrey Book Club. And uh, a lot of folks in the Latino community felt like she should have selected a book that was written by somebody that was inside of that identity um, versus having a, a white woman uh, author uh, having that opportunity to have, again, millions of books sold, right? And so I think Oprah's perspective was centered around the importance of amplifying the imagination. And she talked a lot about you know, who should get to publish or write those stories. And while I, I get that and I agree with that to a certain extent, um, I also wonder whose stories actually get published and why or why not, right? So those authors in marginalized and historically excluded identities may not have access to the capital may not have access to the publishers, may have a voice that they write in that isn't the, uh, the voice that we normally hear that's been normalized in a lot of the books that we've read. And maybe they don't get an opportunity to have their books published or their books on Oprah's uh, reading list. And so uh, I want to actually get into this a little bit more in today's show because uh, it really resonates with me that how narratives are crafted and how we share our stories is one of the ways that we can unlock the club. And so I'm really excited about getting into this discussion with an amazing guest on today's show. Uh, our special guest today on Unlocking the Club is Julie lithcott Haynes. Julie, hello, hello, it's great to see you. Angela, 
Thank you so much for having me. It's so amazing just to listen to you intro this piece, this episode. I just love what you're doing and I'm honored to be a part of it. Well, it is. I know that you're incredibly busy. You have a lot going on, a lot of exciting things. Um, I'm living vicariously a little bit through you. Um, as I talked about, like, right, I did enjoy writing, but I, I wasn't a writer. And I just think it's fascinating the different things that you've done over the last several years since you've been an author. Um, but I'm curious, we've heard about the things that you have done, the books that you've written. I'm curious about who you are. So we'd love for you to bring us more contour and context to who this fabulous Julie Lithcott Haynes actually is. Thanks for that invitation and for holding space for me to do that. I was so moved by your own story because I too was a kid who once was trying to write, but unlike you, my teachers did not regard me as a good writer. So I come at writing from having been rejected as a writer for decades, and maybe we'll get into that. Um, but um, you know, I I just have a lot of empathy for that seventh grader and you uh, struggling with whether to center writing in your life and why you chose not to. Okay, so I'm this black and biracial person, as you've said, black father, white mother, who fell in love at a time, 1960s, when it was literally to transgress the rules of society in America, to dare to be a couple, to marry and have a child. And I think I learned quite young, as black and brown children do in America, that something was wrong with me. Um, I caught that message from the looks of strangers. Um, I learned that message from the way teachers did not see my academic skills, could only see my skin color, and decided not to give me advanced opportunities, despite evidence, testing evidence that I was capable, um, because I presume they couldn't see past my my race. Um, and then friends treating me either, you know, as the stereotype or telling me, don't worry, you're not, you're not black like that, you know, you're you're normal. And so I was sort of simultaneously the blackest thing in my town that was all white and yet sometimes told, don't worry, you're not black. It was, you know, unbelonging anywhere, really. Um, and um, I think it gave me a lot of empathy for humans. You know, many of us have empathy and I know you do, obviously. And I know my, my journey has been towards self-acceptance in the face of societal rejection. I have finally learned to love this black self, biracial, white mother, light skin, the way I talk, I finally came to that place of self-love in my, in my late thirties. I'm now 54. And I think it, it's, it animates my fierce care that every one of us be invited in, particularly those of us who've been pushed to the margins or are literally outside the lines that society likes to use to classify people, whether it's race or gender or sexual orientation and, 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 I'm somebody who's trying to say, no, you matter, you matter. We all, we all do matter. And in order for us all to matter, we have to do a much better job of bringing those of us who have traditionally been kept on the margins to the center of the page. Mm. Wow. So much there. Right. And there's this sense, Julie, as you're talking of this strength and this power and this clarity over your journey and who you are and getting to that place of self-love. But I know it didn't happen overnight and I know it wasn't easy. And so just really curious about how you were in such a extreme situation, like, right? Like every day, that was your lived experience every single day of not fitting in. How did you get to that point of self-love? What did you have to unlock? 
Um, I was outwardly successful. I, my parents were raised me middle class. My dad was a public health doctor. My mom was a teacher and then got a PhD in education. And um, so I was raised with opportunity and that privilege allowed me to attend um, college. And I attended even a brand name college and a brand name law school. And I became a lawyer and I became then a university administrator and dean. And so outwardly successful by many measures. Um, and yet I now know, looking back on it, just trying to never be called the N-word again, just trying to be the black person who wasn't the stereotype, which was essentially me acting, behaving, performing for others, for the approval of mainstream, i.e. white society, the folks that run the show, I was trying to please constantly. And um, turns out as I was, you know, this outwardly successful person, I was getting some feedback from a great coach who'd been hired to work with our entire team at Stanford, my boss and his direct reports. And um, it's a long story, but let me condense it to this. Um, she did a 360 on me, told me my colleagues thought I was too emotional and too aggressive. And that of course is a stereotype of black women. My coach said, Hey, I'm not, I'm, I, I'm, I have no patience for that stereotype. I'm working with you. I want to know, you know, do you see any truth in this? And is the way you are showing up at work working for you? And I was able to admit that, well, no, it's unlike law where my emotion and aggression were, were valued in academia. It's very collegial and collaborative. It's not about having the best idea. It's about listening and working together. And I wouldn't do any of that. Um, because I needed to be right all the time because I, you know, again, I now know I didn't want to be mistreated or disregarded or not believed or trusted, which for me was all about race. And so she helped me develop a mindfulness practice to notice when I was feeling triggered. Um, and, um, and I did, and I was able to kind of get in front of the emotion before it seized me. And then I could decide, you know, is now the time to be really big with my emotion or my feelings or my words, or is, is the time later? If the time is now, how do I want to show up? So it slowed down the emotional trigger, allowed me to get more cognitive about it while soothing myself around the emotion. It's not about ignoring the emotion. It's about validating it, frankly, and saying, okay, now in the face of that, what do we want to do next? And then finally, I was able to admit to her some stuff that really felt quite shameful to me. As I was looking for the source of my angst, I admitted to her, look, as a child and young adult, I had hated being black. I had feared black people and just tried to be what white people valued. And I thought I was the only black person, Angela, to ever feel that way. Um, and I felt so ashamed and was crying and snotty tears as I said it. And I've come to realize, of course, many of us end up with this internalized oppression, fear or hatred uh, or shame around our own group when we are members of a group about which negative stereotypes are held. And so in naming it to my coach, which was really to name it to my heart and to my spirit and my psyche and my mind, I named it, I tamed it and literally was freed from it. And that's, you know, it's sort of ridding myself of the shame. Uh, the shame was replaced with self-love. It was like a switch that was flicked and I've never looked back. Yeah, I love it named it, tamed it, and was free. Yeah. And I wonder, because that really resonated with me for so many different reasons, like, right, I think that that is the lived experience for, for so many folks that don't see themselves in whatever is accepted or valued or appreciated. That self-hate or sense of having to prove yourself to check boxes that were appreciated 
in white America and not necessarily um, replicated like in our communities. Like, do you, can you pinpoint like, what was the genesis of that? Like, what, how did you get those messages? Was it the teachers that you mentioned in school that didn't believe that you were right? Or was it the kids? Where did you hear those messages or was it just something that you took on? It was the accretion of very small moments. So I remember at age four, walking down the streets of our little sleepy town outside of Manhattan with my daddy, who was a tall, handsome, dark black man. And I could see the snarling racist sneer on the face of some white men, not all white people, uh, but some. And it was a, a look that was meant to intimidate him, my father, who wasn't intimidated because he came out of the Jim Crow South and he was like, I'm not <laughs> having this. But I was scared. I was afraid. And it was somebody who pulled their child out of the swimming pool that I was swimming in when I was seven because I was a black child and their everyone else was white and I was contaminating the pool. It was um, the fifth grade teacher who refused to put me in gifted and talented despite my uh, quite high test scores. Um, it was the N-word written on my locker on my 17th birthday where I was simultaneously student body president and the only black kid, the only kid of color in my 1200 person high school, two Jewish kids and me, that is how white my high school was. So simultaneously, you know, approved, right. Elected to lead. And yet someone scrawls the N word on my birthday sign that my best friend had put on my locker. And I never told anybody because I knew I was the N word of my town. I was so ashamed to be the N word of my town. I didn't want to bring further attention to my N wordness by telling anybody that this had happened. So I buried it and didn't tell a soul. It happened on my 17th birthday. I didn't tell a soul until I was 44. You're kidding me, really? When I was writing poetry, I went back to try to make something out of my writing, see if I could write a book. I was in an MFA program at California College of the Arts and I was writing poetry. I've taken poetry classes and I wrote this poem in seven different typefaces to depict seven different voices that were present in my life in high school. And that message that was written on my birthday sign is in that poem. And that was the first time I dug it up like a really deeply embedded root that has to be like, you need the big hoe to like get it out. And I dug it up, you know, for the first time when I was 44. Well, as I'm listening to you, it's death by a thousand paper cuts. Right? So often, right. you know, I'm sure to this day, people see you, Julie, um, wildly successful, um, so, such a great person to be around. Like humanity is so important to you, how you live your life, right? Um, is how you want people to, to live their life. And all of these stories that there's probably a thousand other stories, like, right? That um, maybe you, you remember, maybe you don't even recall. And so often people can't reconcile that both can be true. They're like, but you're successful. Right. But, but right. no, but there isn't this, you know, bias and racism and sexism. Right, right. You know, the first thing I need to say is, and I'm so aware that with my light skin and white mother, adjacency to whiteness through my mother and now my husband, the black life I have led is nothing like the black life you have led with your darker skin, um, for example. Um, and so I want to be clear that my, my stories are tiny, tiny compared to what darker and uh, brothers and sisters or folks with less, you know, opportunity, education, lower SES have had to deal with. So I'm really clear that my story is not one of oppression. I think my story is 
racism will follow you wherever you go. In fact, I think there's a small piece of it. The racists get incensed when you're middle class or upper middle class, when you're at Stanford, when you are a corporate lawyer, they're like, wait a minute, that's not what's supposed to happen. So they, you know, they, they get sort of you're, you're too big for your britches or you're out of place. And I think that's been, been my story. People trying to say, no, 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 wait a minute. Like I'm up the ladder. Thanks to my parents' privilege and what they're able to offer me. You know, they're trying to cut that rung out from under me so that I fall back down to where they think black people should be. Yeah. Well, and you you pinpointed the right thing is um, we're not a monolith. Like there are right. so many different lived experiences, uh, skin color, um, you know, geography, where you grew up or where you live, socioeconomic status, educational access, like all of those different things. And I think so often the simplification of the lived experience shows up. Um, and you mentioned a little bit earlier when you were telling your story was like, I'm too light to fit in with the black folks and I'm too dark yeah. to fit in with the white folks. So who do I belong to? And I, I hear that quite often from friends that are biracial of that challenge, like, right, that no matter what, you have to ch check the same box, like, right, on the census. Um, and no matter what your story is, um, you never feel, or oftentimes people don't feel like they fit in either group. And that has to be a really painful experience too, particularly as, as a youth. You know, I claimed the term biracial when they offered it, I claimed it. It was like a blood transfusion. Like, thank God I have this life-giving word that explains why I'm so different, why I look so different. Um, that word was first offered up to us biracial in the late eighties. And I was just coming out of college and I really just just it explained me and I clung to it for a couple decades. Now I identify as black and biracial as a matter of explaining my ancestry. Like, yes, I have a white mother, um, but I have found a black self I can love. That's what the journey to self-love was. It was, which is not to say that people who call themselves biracial are not self-loving, but my, my biracial thing was like, oh, but you know, at least I'm half white. Frankly, I think that was why biracial made sense to me. It was like, it explained my half whiteness and and gave me a, a place to belong. Um, now I'm black, self-loving, light-skinned black woman, uh, technically ancestrally biracial. Uh, here's what I say, because I give assemblies for kids on race, on identity. And I say to them, look, because I get these questions, particularly from kids who are third culture or biracial, or, you know, I say, look, first and foremost, when we belong to ourselves, we belong everywhere. Because when we are self-loving, it forms this protective bubble and we go out in the world, school, workplace, neighborhood, America. And if we know we're good, then we are protected from the insults that come, not entirely perhaps, but largely. So the interior work is what's essential. Learn to love that self despite what they think or what they've said or done. And you will be infused with not just love, but then confidence and pride and all of that. And in order to get to the self-love, in addition to undoing the psychological damage with a coach or a therapist, learn about your culture. Learn about, you know, if you're African American, learn about our learn about our history in this country. Learn about um, what we've been through. Read the books, read the memoirs, read the fiction, look at the movies, watch the TV, listen to the podcasts. You know, if you're from China, if you're people from China, like spend some time understanding that culture, learning about that culture and that ancestry and that heritage, because 
pride and confidence sits atop information. And often kids don't have access to the information. As we know, K-12, they're arguing over whether we can even teach the truth of American history. But college is a time, if you have access to college, when you get there, take some classes about the history and literature uh, of your own people so that you can level up your information-based understanding of who you yeah. are. Well, I remember when you were writing the book, Real American, um, and you talking about that journey and, and unpacking some of those stories and being able to get to the truth of who you are and what your journey was. Um, that juxtaposed against exactly what you just mentioned, this all out assault, preventing people from learning the truth, the true history, um, so that we can have that self-love, so that we can appreciate who we are and feel like we can belong anywhere. Like, what's your sense of that as, a, as an author, as a member of the storytelling society, right? We can get pretty overwhelmed by how much is broken. And there's a lot that's broken right now. I don't need to tell you that. Your listeners know that. And it can make us want to stick our heads in the sand or gather up our family and leave um, if we have privilege. And, you know, I think we're all confronting what can I do? And within the context of storytelling and writing specifically, I have a commitment as a nonfiction writer to do a couple of things that subvert the norms of American publishing. One of the norms is race is only mentioned if the character made up or real person that we're referring to, whether fiction or not, is non-white. So the norm is you just talk about a person and you list race if they're non-white. And it's this terrible white supremacy-based compact between publishing, editing, authors, and readers, which says we don't gotta mention race if it's white because everyone knows white is the norm. I am doing my part to say, not in my books, uh-uh. We're gonna mention race. If race is relevant, we're gonna mention everybody's race or skin color or ethnic attributes. So I do that in my writing. Um, the second thing is I'm tired of reading specifically nonfiction books that purport to be, you know, information for everybody, you know, self-help for all. But all the examples are drawn from white, straight, middle-class, educated people or upper middle-class. I'm insulted. I open that book and I'm like, where, where am I in this? Like, you, you don't even imagine I exist. And I give writers pushback when I'm asked to blur books as writers are, we're asked to support each other's books by reading an early copy and writing an, a, a support testimony. And if I come across a book like that, I'm like, you know what, this book purports to be about, you know, everybody, but you know, you're, and then often they say, well, I'm just, I'm not trying to be specific. I really want to cover all. And like, by trying to speak to all, you're not speaking to many of us because you're not, your, your examples are really actually speaking to a very narrow slice. So I push back on other authors and I will refuse to blurb their book if they don't make changes, which I'm sure makes me unpopular with some, but it's me trying to be in my integrity as I do my work. In my own book, my, mo my most recent book, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult for Young Adults and All People Wanting Advice on How to Live Their Best Adult Life, it actually was written with a commitment to inclusion embedded in it, which is I'm going to tell my thoughts about living your best life, but I'm going to go find dozens of other humans from all different walks of life in every way you can imagine difference and pull their stories onto the page so that we can see myriad differences 
um, ways of being identities, but also see the common threads between all of us. We're all trying to make it. We're all trying to find love and work and, you know, be okay and be safe. And we have that, we have so much in common. So I'm trying to amplify our differences for the sake of inclusion and in so doing demonstrate our similarities. Yes, that is beautiful. I, I love the intentionality and how you're modeling. Cause I know it can't be easy when you're an industry that when there was a, an article in the New York Times, Spaces of Power, and they talked about the publishing industry, um, predominantly white, like, right? A lot of the, the folks at the top of the, that ecosystem are white men, older white men. And so for you, who is making a career out of writing books, right? And needing um, to be in that club, right? To be accepted into that club, how you navigate being authentic of modeling who you are. Like I, I've noticed you also talking about privilege, like, right, you were really intentional about saying those places and noticing um, where you do have privilege. And I think that's important for all of us to do so we can distill that word. Um, but I also notice the pushback that you are committed to doing and that can't be easy when you're trying to make it. Well, let me tell you one more piece. Let me tell you one more piece. Cause I, I'm known for being a bit of a maverick. I'm known <laughs> for speaking my mind. You know, it worked as a litigator, but, you know, not necessarily as a human in all places. And when How to Raise an Adult was newly published, this is the anti-helicopter parenting book, my first book, um, which became a New York Times. Well, I just gave away a part of the story. Um, anyway, this book has done well. Uh, but before we knew it was going to do well, my publisher and all the people who worked there were uh, were thrilled that Laura Ingraham wanted me on her what? show. And right. And they were like, oh, my gosh, we're so excited. Laura Ingraham, um, you know, she moves books. That's code for when she promotes a book, people wow. buy it. And I was like, OK, and she is a fucking racist and I am not going on her show. And they're like, oh, but, you know, she only wants to talk to you about parenting. And I'm like, oh, but I'm going to sit there in the green room waiting to go on. And she's going to be this was. 2015. So like Michael Brown had been killed the year before Trayvon Martin had been killed three years before. Right. We were in the early years of what we now call black lives matter. And I was like, I'm going to be listening, just having to like in the waiting room before she interviews me and she's going to call black people thugs. And I'm not here for that. And they finally, and I, they said, you won't be a New York times bestseller if you don't. And I was like, I'm not going to sell out to make the New York times list. And then they still pushed. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? And then I said, here's the thing. Find me a person of color on your team who wants to convince me to do this. Well, there were none, right? So point to Julie. And then I said, find me a queer person who would go on a show with somebody who hates queer people. You know, find me a Jew who would go on the show with someone who was a Holocaust denier mm -hmm. and anti-Semitic. At the end of the day, the senior person, the publisher, white Jewish man tried to get me to go on this show. And I held firm and did not and did become a New York Times bestseller. But even had I not, I do not want to sell out my most important principles to sell yes, books. Yes. And it would be so easy to do, like in this capitalistic society that we're operating in, the fact that you maintained clarity about what was important to you and what was not, and that they didn't listen to you the first time when you said, or the, the fifth, fifth time. time. I mean, it was pressure. Like you would not, because they make money. If my book sells, I get it. That's what publishers that I'm grateful that they published my book. 
And boy, what balls I had. I'm sorry, but this was my first book. I didn't even know anything. I have a lot more agency now as an author, three books in. You know, I can insist that my real American, my prose poetry memoir, which, you know, violates rules of grammar and syntax because it's prose poetry. You know, I can say, no, 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 that's white space. You can't, you know, they wanted to save paper by saying like, we're just going to condense all the white space. And I was like, no, you wouldn't do that if this was pure poetry. You can't do that. You know, I was able to make that argument here with book two, whereas with book one, and I tried to say, I want to use gender inclusive pronouns. They're like, no, no, no. The standard is he, she, you know. And so I keep fighting. I keep fighting. I keep making, you know, a few of advancements forward. And sometimes I get, I take some steps back, but I keep well, going. Thank you for doing that. But I, I have to know, Julie, who do you have to be to show up that way? You know what? I, my partner, Dan, uh, my beloved of 34 years, about to hit our 30th wedding oh, anniversary. Congrats. He gave me a machete for Mother's Day. <laughs> and it sits right here. Are you kidding me? Oh my goodness. That is fantastic. All right. And it says, you know, it's inscribed and it says for for making your own path. Okay, so my partner gave me a machete to honor the fact that he sees me like making my own path. And I think it does come back to, there was no path for me. People like me didn't exist or were called problematic, right? What are you, where are you from? Who, you know, you're too problematic for us to classify. I have been trying to carve my own path ever since I got here, even within the context of the, middle-class and educational privileges my fam my parents were able to offer, I was still very much an outsider trying to, you know, force my way in. And I think it has given me this maverick edge. It's given me this rebelliousness, you know, the rules, let me put it this way. The rules of society told me I was problematic and I learned that as a small child. So what are you going to do? You're either going to, you know, wither, shrivel up, wither and die. Or you're going to say, fuck that shit. I matter too. And I'm going to make my own way. Amen. That sounds like another book title. F F that oh, shit. Exactly. <laughs> that might be the next one, right? Let's see what the publishers, which, which shows they try to have you on for that one. I might have to self-publish. <laughs> I love it. Well, and I could totally see you continuing to wield that machete. Um, because I think that you recently announced that you're actually going to run for city council in Palo Alto, California. And first, thank you. I want to celebrate you for doing that and making that choice because I know you're incredibly busy. Being a politician is not easy. Running a campaign is, is not the first choice for many people. But I actually want to unpack um, like what you know you'll need to have like right that self-love, that self-care for this fight for a seat at the table. Wow, thanks. Uh, thanks for being so on top of my news. Um, I, uh, I had to reckon with in this American moment when I am tempted to hide or flee, uh, people, uh, should not do that, particularly people who have privilege and resources to offer others. And I'm my own boss. So I get to make the decisions that are harder for others to make in their own lives. I decided to, instead of fleeing, I decided to stay and fight for everybody in my town. We'd we lack affordable housing. We're sort of this lovely city with a storied history around, you know, tech and 
Stanford. And, and yet there are a lot of people here who want to shut the gate behind them. And again, coming from a place of unbelonging, I'm like, nah, uh, 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 everybody ought to have a chance to access these parks and these schools and these, uh, this way of life. And so what I'll need is a team of people who can support me, love me, you know, like show up with, with encouragement, but also frankness. I need feedback on, you know, how I'm showing up and I need feedback on how to be more gracious because I do have this personality that's, you know, sometimes is, uh, too much for the situation and certain, certainly to be a politician, to be politic is to, you know, is to really carefully construct your words. I know that a lot of people like, Oh, Julie's going to flame out because she's going to say <laughs> something, piss a whole lot of people off. And I want to be authentically me and my maturation at 54. I'm much more able to ascertain in this moment at this table, in this setting, What's the right way for me to show up? Not to tamp myself down. Let's reframe it as to have the impact I want to have. I need to kind of, you know, uh, pick my words a little bit more carefully. So I'm going to be open to and needing a lot of of frank feedback from what I would call my kitchen cabinet, which are the people who are going to sit around the table with me weekly and figure out how we doing and what do we need to do next in order to win this thing. Love it. So vote Julie, right? Uh <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, julie4paloalto.com. Go donate, right? Because campaigns are not easy yeah. to run in order to have people at the oh. table. Unfortunately, oh. I don't know if it's if it's the best thing, but money does have an impact in politics. Money has an impact, but I will say this. There is no campaign limit in my town. There's a state limit. If your city doesn't have a limit, the state will limit you to 4,900. I've said that's too high. I've put in a voluntary cap of a thousand, which is still very high, but I'm only accepting donations up to a thousand because I don't want a bunch of the richest rich supporting my campaign. I'm really hoping for small donations like 50 and a hundred would be fantastic. So um, that's, that's part of my message, you know, in access for all entails uh, the rich shouldn't be able to buy elections. Exactly. Well, and I can't imagine that the decision was easy for you to decide to run. You mentioned before that as we're seeing everything happen, um, you can make a couple different choices. You can just be overwhelmed and frustrated by what's happening. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, inside of all this, we had a client that mentioned um, in a Zoom chat, uh, he said, isolation is addicting. And that resonated yeah. with me because I live in Idaho and I have found, yeah. like, I can control my environment here and maybe not have to be frustrated and disappointed in, in who's surrounding me. And so isolation is addicting. But for you, you're making the choice, like, I, I can't just choose not to interact. What, what fueled that? Affordable housing. My city council decided in 2012 to build some affordable housing for low income people and senior housing. So for limited income people, uh, just uh, right down the street on the main, you know, I live on a tiny street. I have to take that main street to get to the big street. So um, we, the city council had done the right thing and it was going to be in my neighborhood and I was so happy. And then the voters rebelled with a referendum to overturn the city council called measure D and despite best efforts on the parts of so many, who were in against Measure D in favor of the affordable housing, Measure D passed. And so now we have these many mansions that I have to drive past to get to the post office and the grocery store. And it sickens me. 
I'm not mad at the people who live there. I'm mad at our community for lacking a spirit of inclusion and a valuing that all people belong. And so that's the piece, even though I have my house, even though I have never lacked housing because of my privilege, I come from people who come from people who struggled a lot. And, and I was raised young to know, like we make room for, for everybody. Everybody does matter. And particularly those who have less need to be assisted and, um, you know, to get the basics so that they have a chance at life. So housing is the key, you know, you don't, it's not like, you know, whether people are unhoused or low income in, in struggling to, um, to, uh, have a better place to live. Um, oftentimes people think, oh, they're, you know, I don't know that they are on drugs or they have mental health issues. And, and the research says, get folks into safe housing first, and then you can address whatever other issues might be challenges for them. And it's, it's, so therefore housing is really the bedrock of belonging and being okay in our society and man, a society with so much largesse, with so many riches, it's a, it's an embarrassing shame that so many among us um, are not given access to the bare minimum we need to succeed as humans. Yeah, the fact that your zip code determines your, outcome your outcomes is just, yeah. to your point, is shameful. Shameful. Yeah, we have to do something about it. And again, I can't wait to, to, to support you in this journey. But I also recognize that what we've seen over the last few election cycles is oftentimes it is Black women that are leading the charge yeah. and leading the way to make sure that we don't lose our democracy. And then when the folks that we elect have that seat at the table, they forget the people that voted them into office. They forget what those particular individuals need for their livelihood to avoid those social determinants of health and outcomes. Mm. And so how do you, like, right, when you get that seat at the table, because I'm gonna put it out there in the atmosphere now, <laughs> right, you're gonna be on that city council. How do you make sure your voice is heard? You know, number one, thank you for the reminder about Stacey Abrams and Cori Bush and so many others. Uh, I definitely have them in mind when I think about taking this small step, which, you know, it's city council of a smallish city. It's not, you know, but it, I think any type of leadership has the potential to have impact. So I'm inspired by them. Thank you for the reminder to hold myself accountable if I do win. Um and uh, you know, I'm, I'm a person running not for myself, but to be a vocal advocate for others. So my job is going to be to continually to listen to others, to know how to continually serve. So one of my ideas is there's this lovely little um, local breakfast place, restaurant, but really known for its breakfast down the street from me uh, called oh, Hobie's. And I think I want to have, cake, right? You remember Hobie's? Right, right, the coffee cake you remember from Stanford. Well, the one near Stanford is closed, but the one farther exactly. south toward Mountain View is still open, very near me. And I want to have, you know, like come and, and have coffee with me on Monday mornings, constituents, so that I can have your voice in my head Monday night at city council. In other words, I want to always hear from you so that I can then have you in my mind and my heart and my spirit as we're talking about these various issues about how our city runs and what it's gonna do next. I love that. And what I'm hearing from you, Julie, is I think so often from folks that are running for office, success is winning. And for you, winning is the start. It now gives you the opportunity to listen to the people and to serve the people. 
I will add that losing will also have its benefit. Number one, I won't have to give all this time, but um, but I, I what I mean, that was tongue in cheek. What I actually mean is I expect to do a lot of growing in this process as I level up, as I really climb this learning curve. I have to learn so much that I don't know. And it's putting me in that place of I'm still a learner, which is what I where I always want to be, frankly. So what an opportunity for me to learn and work hard, to try, to level up, to be of use. You know, even if I lose, I hope that I will have learned a lot and developed some important relationships with people who, you know, who are who've been supporting me. I told my campaign manager the other day, win or lose, what I want out of this is a deep connection and friendship with you. You know, I want to know that I have treated you so kindly and graciously in this process and vice versa, that at least our relationship is intact, uh, even if we don't win. No, that's powerful words. I was talking to a group of high school students um, a month or so ago and shared that, you know, oftentimes folks look at successes in the outcome, but the successes in the journey. And if you have that perspective that you just offered, win or lose, there's a learning opportunity. And for someone who is a career learner, like I don't doubt, um, I hope that you win, but I don't doubt that there's going to be great benefits, not just for you, but the halo effect for others um, through this process and the journey that you're on. Um, and it just reminds me, you know, when you talk about, you know, going to Hobies and having these coffee talks, uh, which I think is amazing. Um, like you built relationships with a lot of amazing humans over the years. Um, when you were a dean of students or dean of freshmen at Stanford, I believe was the title. Um, yep. And I kind of want to pivot because what we've seen a lot over the last few years inside of COVID, I think mental health is the next major pandemic. Uh, and yeah. so I know that mental health and youth is an area of focus for you as well as the other things yeah. that you have on your plate. Um, and there's been so many tragic stories of students, high school students, college students, uh, student athletes, deciding that the pain of living with other humans was too great to bear. And what have you discovered in your conversations as you're going and talking to parents or students and on campuses um, around the country? Well, my town is uh, ground zero for that. We've, uh, over the years, recent years, had um, a number of young people choose to end their lives by suicide, uh, most often at the train tracks that run through our town. And um, in fact, I uh, was close to somebody who ended his life recently uh, last fall. And so uh, Palo Alto has a lot of reckoning to do, as do cities like us, frankly, that have come up with such a narrow definition of success and have really messaged it well so that our young people feel, I am worthy when I have the right grades. I am loved when I have the right scores. My purpose is to get into the right college. My purpose is to study the right thing. There, There's all of these messages being uh, forced upon them that I know is leading to this sense of helplessness and hopelessness. Um, they'll tell you even when they are high achieving, I don't know if any of this is going to turn out to be worth mm -hmm. it. Um, so um, look, the message is love your kids for who they are, not for their grades and scores. And examine what's in you as a parent that needs a certain bumper sticker on the back of your car, so much so that you're going to undermine your kid's mental health in order to get it. So I'm super clear. And as a city council person, I wouldn't, you know, I don't have a lot to do with the schools here, but the schools and city need to be in partnership. And frankly, it's not just the young adults who are unwell. Uh, they have suffered mightily before the pandemic and augmented by the pandemic, but all yes. of us 
are lonely. All of us are stressed out of our minds. And as a council member, I would want to the council to set the right standards. Council meets till midnight, sometimes until 2 a.m., which doesn't just privilege the, you know, it's, I call it the tyranny of the mm -hmm. awake. It's undemocratic if your constituents can't stay awake to listen to you decide. Um, but it's not healthy. It's not healthy to promote that that's normal. So I think there are all kinds of messages we can send with our own behaviors as council people that hopefully will help shift the narrative, the storytelling in Palo Alto about what success really is and how we can all achieve it. So important, like right, and oftentimes overlooked. Um, there's so much pressure these days and it feels like there's such a concerted effort to use fear, right, to rule. And um, it just like the, the energy that you have on a day-to-day -day basis, you're right, like mental health is affecting all of us in so many different ways. And if we don't take the time to normalize counseling and seeking therapy and being in conversation and acknowledging and being aware of where you're hurting, um, I fear like, right, where we're going as a society. Yeah, absolutely. I think... Uh, look, you and I, you and I know that, and our listeners know that um, it is normal to be unwell. It is normal to be anxious. It is normal to be depressed. It is normal to be languishing right now. The pandemic has kept us from our most important resource, which is mm -hmm. each other. As a human species, as humans, we are a social species. We need the juice of interactive, face-to-face, in-person connection. We need skin-to-skin. -skin. We need deep conversations of care. And the pandemic took that away. And we have to just really amplify those opportunities now that we're sort of coming coming out of mm. this thing. It reminds me, there's an excerpt um, on your website. It says, uh, I believe in humans. I'm rooting for all of us to make it. I've come to appreciate that despite our innumerable differences, we all want to be treated with dignity and kindness. We all yearn and know that we matter. We all want to be seen, accepted, and loved simply as we are. That statement and the rest of, of the statement on your website uh, was so compelling. Yeah. Uh, and I wanted to hear more about what you've learned through the conversations you have as a result of um, the amazing book of how to raise an adult. Um, do you mean how to raise an adult or do you mean the new book, how to both, your both, turn? Because I know that you're in conversation. Okay, okay. no, no, no. Um, look, I've, I've learned that no matter where I go, humans have, humans love their kids, parents love their kids. Kids are trying to figure themselves out, have tough conversations with parents about what really matters to them. Uh, we all want our kids to be healthy and happy, we say. It's just that many of us have gotten off track about what leads to healthfulness and happiness. Mm, yeah. Well, and I imagine, again, with based on your journey um, of being that student that wasn't accepted, uh, and a lot of our listeners are, are, are parents, um, what was it like for you to be in those rooms and be seen and heard and your voice and perspective to be valued by people that didn't look like you? Yeah, I've been, um, I've been stunned. It, you know, what's happened, it's writing this book, Real American on, on dealing with racism and microaggressions has brought me even closer to the black community and to others who have been marginalized on the basis of identity. So um, being vulnerable about my struggles has brought me into deeper relationship with humans, um, black folks, people of color, queer folks, 
um, the parenting book, I reveal my own struggles. I've got kids myself and have made all the mistakes I tell others not to make. So I come not with judgment, but with look what we're doing. I'm doing it. You're doing it. Let's talk about how not to do it. So I just, I fall in love with humans over and over and over again. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, Julie, I, I could probably have this conversation with you for hours. Uh, and uh, you have so much on your docket that I want to honor your time. Um, this has been a lot of fun, um, but I'm not quite ready for the conversation to end. Um, so want to take a quick break and then uh, cover the back nine with you, if you will. Just a few more questions to help our, our listeners get to know you a little bit better uh, and then find out what you're doing and where we can support you. So are you up for the back nine? I don't golf, but I think I'm safe on the back nine with you. All right, perfect. I don't golf, golf either, but uh, but we'll, we'll figure it out. So we'll be right back in a moment with the back nine. Do you want to stop feeling like you have little to no control over your life's journey and instead amplify your life's purpose? You all know me as Angela Taylor, host of the Unlocking the Club podcast, but I am also a business, career, life, and leadership coach helping my clients to live their best life. Every day, I help my clients discover what they truly want in life and then unlock the club on how they can live their best life. If you're like many of my clients, you have found yourself over the years prioritizing everyone else and everything else. Your job, your significant other, your family, your friends, your community, the list goes on and on. Well, I'm here to tell you the best thing you can do for others is to invest in yourself. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't need to succumb to the fear of failure. You don't have to be perfect. You don't need to feel like you're being selfish. You simply need to prioritize you. You may be thinking that coaching is for other people, but trust me when I say that we all could benefit from a good coaching relationship. Together, we'll build a plan to help you amplify your gifts, clarify your goals, and accelerate your journey toward the life you desire, which may be finding financial wealth, spiritual health, relationship success, and or freedom and flexibility. You no longer have to feel like you aren't welcome into someone else's club. Let me empower you to leverage all of your extraordinary gifts and create your own club. Head on over to unlockingtheclub.com to book a free 20-minute introductory call to learn more about our Unlocking Your Journey coaching packages or use code UNLOCK to get a 15% discount on the six-month coaching package. Today is the day to invest in yourself. Let's unlock your journey. the back nine with Julie Lithcott-Hames. Julie, first question for you is, um, besides your home or your she shed, uh, what is the place that you feel safest to be yourself? Wow, it's supposed to be quick. Um, uh, I've been with my life partner for 34 years. He is my ride or die. He loves me no matter what. He has loved me when I didn't love myself. And um, so I feel safe in his presence, staring in his eyes and in his arms. Mm, that's fantastic. Uh, tell us a little bit about just what's next for you. Um, besides city council, any more book titles, um, anything ex any exciting news that we need to be on the lookout for? Um, thank you so much for the opportunity to share that. Um, uh, I have a new Ted course, Ted, the people that do Ted talks, have a whole new concept they're calling TED courses. They've just launched six and I'm the instructor for one. 
it's an adulting course. I think they're calling it how to live, how to be your best adult self. It's based on my new book, your turn. And, uh, it's an asynchronous four week long course. Um, and I'm super excited to partner with Ted and, uh, pretty proud of the content that collectively we put together. So that's my newest that's awesome. thing. That's awesome. Uh, and then, your uh, Facebook Live, let's talk. What have you learned yeah. through that journey? Well, let me tell you, look, I started writing uh, blogging weekly at a place I called Julie's Pod, which comes with a sticker. If people read the boilerplate, they'll see they can request a sticker. And I send them three with like a little handwritten note. And I invite people, you know, it's where I blog weekly about what's going on, what I'm observing, and I'm very vulnerable. And I invite people to comment, but I know not everyone can comment on social media. So I've come up with a hotline, one eight seven seven hi julie which is this little college phone of it. mine, uh, which is for real. Um, it goes straight to voicemail, one eight seven seven hi julie Share your thoughts. I listen. And then on my lives, which I do almost every Monday on Facebook noon Pacific, I feature the calls that have come in and I do other things, but then there's a segment that's let me feature the calls that have come into the hotline. And it's my way of putting, saying you matter. You can't comment publicly. No worries. I got you call my hotline. It's confidential. I'll report out what you said. I'll share my thoughts. I'll keep your identity private. It's my, it's an additional way to be inclusive of all. That's amazing. That's amazing. For those of you that are listening to this podcast, you will have to check out uh, the amazing red phone uh, that uh, that Julie uses for her hotline. <laughs> Fantastic. That's a great photo. Well, Julie, I know you have some amazing things to do, a lot of work on your plate. I am so grateful for you for joining us today on Unlocking the Club. And even more than that, just really appreciate who you are, how you're showing up, and the work that you're doing to unlock the club in a bunch of different ways. So thanks again for joining us. I'm grateful to have been a part of Unlocking the Club. And to all your listeners, I want to say whatever came up for you as Angela and I talked, that's valid. Those are clues from your body to your spirit, you know, to your mind, like, hey, she said something that pushed a button. Lean into that. Ask yourself, what was that? How do I want to take it forward in your own learning and growth journey? You know, what those clues from you to you are really key messages. So well said. All of our stories matter. And so thank you all for, for listening today to Unlocking the Club. I hope you enjoyed the session. Make sure that you follow us, subscribe to our podcast, watch us on YouTube, uh, and make sure we'll have in our show notes where you can find Julie lithcott Hames and the amazing things that she's doing. Make sure that you uh, support uh, Ms. Hames as she's doing the work uh, in Palo Alto. And again, thanks for joining us on Unlocking the Club. Until next time, peace. Thanks for listening to Unlocking the Club. If this conversation resonated with you, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your favorite streaming platform so that you can experience every episode. And follow us on social media where you'll hear about future guests, access special features, and connect with this amazing community. Head on over there and let us know how you are unlocking the club. Until next time, peace.